an epic dance hit that played a pivotal role in one man's journey to becoming the composer and producer he is today. A song that made a lyricist ponder the complexities and cynicism of human relationships. And a punk rock single that encapsulated the energy, angst, and spirit of a Canadian bassist's teenage years. You're listening to Themes and Variation. Themes and Variation is a podcast about music and perspectives brought to you by the online music school Soundfly. I'm your host, Carter Lee. You should know that what you're about to hear was actually recorded as a demo. Uh, Here at Soundfly, we've thought about doing a podcast for several years. We just never quite found the right angle or something that we could really get excited about doing until very recently, uh, my coworker, Mihaly Lee, who you'll hear on this episode, had the idea, you know, why don't we have a theme for every episode? We could form some incredible panels using other Soundfly team members or some awesome guests. Ask everybody to pick a song that relates to the theme, do a little research on that song, and then bring all that in for a little show and tell for for each other and our listeners. So the theme for this, our very first episode, I think is very appropriate in that it's songs from the first record I ever bought. So that's that's purchased with your own money. It's not records that you just happen to own. I think for me, that would be a lot different. I, I remember really loving Huey Lewis and the News for some reason when I was five. And I think my parents like gifted me one of his records as a joke. Uh, oh, boy. But anyways, I've got some great guests joining me for this first episode. Incredible writer, producer, fellow Soundfly team member Martin Fowler and incredible songwriter and uh, our VP of curriculum here at Soundfly, Mahaya Lee. We get into all kinds of stuff like Marty may or may not have been involved in a pyramid scheme at the age of like 12. And Mejia was a lot older than I anticipated anybody being when they purchased their first record. <laughs> let's, let's just leave that at that. So again, with this being our first episode, if you're listening to it on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe there or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast, please leave us a rating. Maybe share it with your friends if you like it. We're really trying to grow something very special, very organically. We hope to bring a lot of these episodes to you in the future. If you have any comments or questions or themes that you might want to see on future episodes, you can drop us a line at podcast at soundfly.com. And so without further ado, let's get into our first theme ever, songs from the first album I ever bought. I'm curious just in terms of like your, your guys' spending habits and at your age, like how old were you when you bought your first record and it wasn't a gift or your parents didn't buy it for you? So I remember this very vividly. I have a great story about this, which is why I want to answer this question. I don't remember what it was in, but somehow I got my hands on one of these BMG catalogs where you could buy <laughs> like yeah. 10 CDs for a dollar made zero sense at all. Wasn't that to like me. the record of the month club or something like that? I, yes. I remember the, yeah. I don't, I still don't understand the economics. So I, I don't understand how it <laughs> made any sense for them to offer this at all. I'm sure I was part of a pyramid scheme at age 12 <laughs> when I found this thing, but I did it and I think it was, ele- I was 11 or 12 when I bought this first CD as a part of this collection of CDs. Man, that was a good dollar I spent. 
You didn't have to. I thought you had to use a credit card with those, and that was the point of it, where you were just like the the dollar wasn't the purpose. The purpose was like you become a member, and then like the next thing that you buy was a uh, lot more money. Yeah, that sounds right. So maybe Marty beat the scam or something, or or your parents like really took a dive on this thing that you set up for them. I don't know. I think yeah, the scheme is probably like. Uh, if somebody buys one CD, the statistics show they're much more likely to buy three full price CDs. And so it's all a wash. Like it will end up making money in the long run. Like I'm sure it was something like that. You know, the music business when I was 12 years old was a uh, was a was a dicey, dicier place than it is even today. These CDs came out presumably around a time when LimeWire and things like that were a thing, right? Not yet. Just before. Dude, when did you guys think the first CD came out? Because this the first I, CD, yeah, the first CD. Nineteen. I should know. Ninety-one. This. No, I 87. think it was eighty-one. It was yeah, it was eighty-two. 82. I don't. I I should have written this down, but I remember like because I thought the mid nineties was when they first came out. Was when the first CD came no. out. No, um, but no, yeah, nineteen eighty-two. That was actually recorded in 1979. I think it was like a, it was an orchestra, I think in Germany. Dude, the Dire Straits, I think it was 85, sold over a million copies of a CD. Who was buying them? Exactly. I didn't think these existed. (laughs) Because my first album was actually a cassette. Um, I'll get into that when I talk about my track, but um, we had CDs in Canada at the time. I know, because you had the option. And dude, albums were crazy expensive then they just like were 20 C- bucks yeah. cds they were on average 17 dollars in the states like seriously it was a lot of money and no that blew my mind that that cds uh really kind of started just like 15 years before i thought they did yeah that's a pretty fun fact that is a fun fact um maybe we should listen to a track marty are you ready do you want me to go uh you I'm, know i'm i'm ready man uh marty why don't you uh take us away then Right, do we know it? Ah, it sounds so familiar. One more time. Ah, there it is. <laughs> this song's amazing, but I thought it was far more recent than, than your first record. Barty, what, what are we listening to? Why don't you tell everybody that, that maybe doesn't know uh, like our co-host what we're listening to? Well, I got it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this is the uh, inimitable uh, Daft Punk's not their first record, but kind of their breakout record called Discovery from 2001. I think I bought this record the year it came out, which was crazy. I don't remember why I knew that this record existed. It was probably one of the like front page co- cover images on the BMG catalog. And I was like, that's a cool <laughs> record cover. Why don't I see what that sounds like? And I put it on and like this, this craziness... I had never heard anything in my life that sounded like that before, you know? What were you listening to up to that point? So 2001 was the year I started playing music also. No, so actually I was 14, actually. I thought I was younger than that, but I was 14 in 2001. And I had I had just been listening to what friends around me thought was cool, which was a lot of like... I don't know. I grew up in Marin County outside of San Francisco, in a, which is a very like hippy dippy kind of place. So like, 
psychedelic rock and prog rock and <laughs> and like some hip hop happening in the periphery but like the high school yeah. I went to was 97% white I was not exposed to a lot of hip hop until a lot later so this was a little mind boggling for for my brain which was only you know accustomed to thinking of music as being like a thing that three or four or five people did by getting into a garage and, and playing instruments together, which I did at around this time as well. Um, so as soon as I heard this, I was like, the whole the whole world is is a lie. Like everything I knew in, in life is a lie. I would say this record was like one of the more pivotal things that ever happened to me. I mean, I, I'm still trying to make music that sounds like this. Do you know, is that Nathan East playing bass on that track? Ooh, that is a, that is a deep bit of trivia that I should know and I don't. This this era of Daft Punk is all is all sample based, almost primarily. Okay. So yeah. as opposed to the later stuff where they were like, let's do let's do that sample thing, but have everybody come in and play it like, like the last couple just smash records that they had, um, where they had a whole yeah. actual live instrumentation come in. No, this was more like let's sample the old disco shit from the late seventies, early eighties, get that sound going, and then manipulate it. Put you know, TR-909 from Roland, that, that kind of drum sound all over it, that, that was kind of their thing. Um, and just make, just, just dance, dance bangers, basically. But this record was really poignant for me because it also showed me the ways in which electronic music in particular didn't have to be just that. It could also be really somber. It could be really emotive in, in all these different Mm -hmm. ways. And the more I, the more I'm talking about it, the more I'm like, this is sort of the the, the spark, the quintessential record of electronic music in a lot of ways. You said, so you were also making music with people kind of getting in garages and playing. Was this the kind of stuff you were trying to make with your friends or like? Absolutely not. I started playing bass that year, nice. uh, joined a rock band that was mostly doing covers of Metallica and ACDC. Sick. And that kind of stuff. Um, not cool shit like this. Maybe Red Hot Chili Peppers. So the the thing that stuck out to me, um, and a th- another thing that has really characterized my sense of how, what music I love in the world is, this is a straight Lydian jam. This is just Lydian for five and a half minutes. Yeah. That's the leading tone one. That's that's the one I hear, mm-hmm. but the bass line gives away what the the harmony is, which dum dum da dum 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 four 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 one five, and then eventually it get, goes down to three three minor three minor three dum ba ba. But it just sits on that four chord for like eighty percent of the song. And this is the opener of the record, mind you. So I was 14, just barely knowing what anything about music was, put on this record. This jam comes on and I'm like, this is this is the only thing I want to do. This is this is it. This is the only thing. This defines <laughs> everything else about what I want to do. What's different about your experience listening to this track now than when you first discovered it? Well, there's a few things. Um it's hard to it's hard to put myself back in that sort of that that first listen chair again simpler you know, times such simpler times for so many reasons but well, one one thing that sticks out is that this this particular track is is just like a a global mega hit at this point it's it's a it's a cultural trope at this point when i hear it i'm like 
I can't really hear it anymore. It's it's like when you learn an idiom or something where it's like you don't really hear the individual letters and the words within that phrase or idiom. It's just something that people say, like mm-hmm. um, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. That's just a thing. And you're like, you have your fixation of what that is. It's hard to change your understanding of it. And I've heard this song so mm-hmm. many times, like maybe thousands of times at this point, which is a really crazy thing to think about. I think you knocked it out of the park, dude. Um, that's an awesome song. And in a, I think not in, well, you guys can tell me if this is embarrassing, but why don't we listen to my song? Oh. <laughs> I'm having trouble trying to sleep. I'm counting shit but running out. As time ticks by, still I try. No rest for God stops in my mind. Just listening to that, I am fired up to talk about this tune, which is, of course, Brain Stew from Green Day. (laughs) So here's like I went on a on a just a a journey of self-discovery trying to figure out what was my first record. Like, I think for all of us, it probably was a little bit tricky. Not not first record that you listen to or love, but first record that you actually bought with your own money. Mm. Um, I was listening to a ton of Green Day. This is the mid 90s. Uh, this this album, Insomniac, came out in 1995. Right before it was Dookie from 94. I had Dookie on CD, and I had Insomniac on cassette. Because I listened to this all the time. I listened to my with my dad in his car. I'd listen to it. I had a little Walkman all the time. I wore this thing out. And the way tapes, obviously, like you'd have to just play it wherever you were in the album, which was kind of awesome. Like I would have to listen to the whole record over and over and over. Um you could have told me that this record was over an hour long. It's 33 minutes. Yeah. Like it's, <laughs> really? It's no longer. How many tracks is it? Uh, like 14 or 15. It, it's a lot. And yeah, and this is also the I age of like, myself. remember hidden tracks uh, on yeah. albums? Like Dookie had one, Noah which was, was incredible. Um, I can't remember if Insomniac actually had a hidden track. Um, but no, this like Brain Stew, man, that, that guitar first note. You know what song it is. Or you know that you've heard it. First note, I was terrified because I didn't know what, what the f*** was happening <laughs> in my ears. Second note, I was like, oh, Dude. I know what this is. Just the most cutting guitar tone. It's just like so just bad. <laughs> like it just hammers you. Uh, and then, of course, the bass comes in. You got Mike Durnt playing his, his P bass. I, I don't think Mike Durnt is his real name, but if you're going to choose a stage name, Durnt is pretty awesome. <laughs> you're going to go with Durnt. Um, and Trey Cool, which is definitely not his, his real name, which I think I is mean, Francis is. something the third. I, I did look that up, but uh, I, it escapes me what his real <laughs> name is. But Trey Cool, um, all three of them getting writer's credit on this tune, which is nice to see a, a band like that just just sharing the wealth yeah. around a little bit. It, it is part of like a, a another song, Jaded. Do you guys remember Jaded? It would go right into So It's Together. That One thing that I was really curious about was how I discovered music. Dude, not, like That's now obviously question. we just share music. I have no idea how I would have discovered. So the record came out in October 
of 95, I didn't get it the day it came out. I wasn't reading BMG yeah. Monthly Magazine <laughs> like Marty or whatever he was. Did you watch much music? Uh, I, I yes, Back so that would have I devoured much music every Canadian MTV, yeah exactly. Um, and it it was incredible. Whoa. I well maybe maybe have to get some clips in here. I'm sure Ed the Sock uh, interviewed these guys. He's a literal like he was a sock hand puppet and hilarious. He had a little cigar in his mouth. It was awesome. All right, here we are in the hallway. There's another place you guys can't get and people you can't get to talk to. Probably what happened was somebody's older brother had it. And uh, then name. their son Whose had older it. Brother was uh, Pat Wilson or Mark Coley's older brother okay. uh, probably had it. If you, if the guitar was cutting like this, because I wanted to play guitar, mm-hmm. that was it. I'm in. So Brain Stew, I was super hooked. I will touch on the lyrics from Brain Stew really quick. So um, I, until recently, as in this morning, didn't know what that, you know, uh, that no rest for cross tops in my mind. I had no idea what word he was singing instead of cross tops. And it was one of those things that I'm sure we all have these songs as a kid. I, when that line would come up, it'd be like, no rest for blah, blah in my mind. What did you like think I, you thought it was? I had no idea. What I did, did you think it was yesterday? Like, <laughs> like cro- Crocs. Well, do you know what a cross top is? No. So a cross top is a small tablet of amphetamine. Oh, so that makes sense. So this song is, is of course, not about um, amphetamines uh, so much as it's about having insomnia. Um, but yeah, Brain Stew, uh, and I do have a little something from Rolling Stone magazine, a little publication you may have heard of. Uh, this is from Billy Joe himself. Uh, Brain Stew, Armstrong explains, is the nickname of James Washburn, a longtime friend of the band. He used to have a big mohawk, and now he's a total ratchet head. Do you guys know what a ratchet head is? Tell us, Carter. It's uh, it's California slang for a car buff. I've never heard anybody. Marty, we're from different parts of California. Uh, yeah. These has that. These guys are you? from very close to where I grew up. I I grew up in Marin County, which is uh, not a place where um, you find a lot of ratchet heads. <laughs> uh, apparently. And uh, just to to one more um, note on Brain Stew, a friend of the band, James Washburn. Uh, Billy Joe says he'll say something like oh man that guy can slip to gear when someone snaps he's a big lyrical influence on me (laughs) so yeah that's that's where brain stew came from it's of course about insomnia I I watched the video today too actually just to get in the right headspace it is pure 90s (sighs) vibe it is a sepia tone throughout the entire video there's like those weird close-up angles of people people's faces you know just like a a real like off center and just like it is it is very cool there's a extreme close-up of a horse i thought it was a dog when i first saw it the the close-up was so extreme but it's a horse and that takes you into jaded so it gets even more frantic and then Anyways, I do want to touch on the harmony of this tune, even though there's not a lot to it. Dealing with power chords, um, obviously, and you'd think like, okay, those, there's no third involved, but um, uh, Billy Joe does sing the major third, so we're very much in the key of A flat major. You have your one chord, then to the flat seven, some hip modal borrowing. Um, then we're on to the six minor chord, the flat six, more modal borrowing, and then the five chord. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, when he sings the third, I might try and sing this real quick. Let's see. Um, I'm having trouble have, so there's your major third nailed it. 
and uh, that just outlines the the harmony of the tune. It is very similar to the progression from you guys know Chicago's twenty five or six to four, except that's in A minor. So it's a half step up, and it's also in minor. Um, I love that using the major one with the minor descending mm. chord progression. That's a great. That's a great technique right there, especially especially when you got yep. power chords, so you can be ambiguous with it if you want to. Hey, Carter, it's me, Carter. Sorry to interrupt, but I want to let our listeners know if they thought the last couple minutes were particularly interesting, or if they found them kind of confusing, they should check out Soundfly's premium course, Unlocking the Emotional Power of Chords. Unlocking the Emotional Power of Chords tackles sophisticated harmonic concepts in a unique and practical way. Through engaging videos, detailed explanations, strategic exercises, and carefully designed projects, you can learn about topics like chord scales, voice leading, and functional harmony. More importantly, you'll have the opportunity to put that knowledge into immediate practice. Whether you decide to go through things on your own using Soundfly's content subscription, or sign up to work with your very own mentor during a highly personalized and intensive session, you'll be encouraged to put your skills to work even while you're honing them. And hey, if harmonic theory is not your thing, that's okay. We have lots of other courses as well as a whole team of expert mentors covering a massive variety of topics. Everything from vocal production to arranging for strings to DIY touring and much, much more. And as a thank you to our listeners, Soundfly is offering 20% off any monthly or annual subscription to our incredible course content. Just enter the code THEMES at checkout. Take a big step toward reaching your musical goals by visiting soundfly.com today. All right, Carter, back to you and the team. I have a I have a theory about this as well as it, it it has to do with the distorted overtones of electric guitar as well. Oh. Yeah, so yeah. The I'm way that, that the uh, the, yeah. the the overtones stack to 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 um, to blend on what's called a third order harmonic distortion. <laughs> Which actually is exactly what uh, Billy and Mike Durnt were thinking. Definitely a thing that they think track. about. You know, they're huge overtone series guys for sure. They were they were really into it. But maybe they well, are. They, are. I don't, they just know, don't. They possible. just don't necessarily know it. You know, you plug into a a, a, a tube amp that's crank, cranked up to eleven, and you hear this sound, and it's just this warm, just abrasive sound that just like punches you in the gut. And you just you just want to get mm-hmm. beat up, you know what I mean? And that is the sound of of tube distortion. And power chords overemphasize those that harmonic stacking in a way that is especially mm-hmm. overemphasized by tube distortion. And that's what makes them so powerful in this style, rock in general, but punk especially. Huh. All right, all right so I'm gonna get these fast facts out that I've Throw been trying to shoehorn in here real yeah. quick. So. Uh, the record, you know, Insomniac, was released uh, October 10th, 1995. It uh, hit number one on one chart, uh, the Canada Rock Alternative Charts uh, from Records Promotion Music Magazine. Um, it also, so on the Billboard chart, it reached number three on alternative songs, uh, number eight on mainstream rock, and number 35 on radio songs. So 
still definitely a hit, but uh, if it was up to me, it would be just number one for a very long time. Well, it sounds like you um, made it her- number one in Canada. I might have had just something to do with that, actually. It. Yeah. I'm counting sheep, but running out. As time ticks by, still I try. No rest for cross tops in my mind. On my own, here we go. So before yeah. before we get into the song I picked, I want to tell you guys which songs didn't make the cut. Yeah. So, Baby One More Time by Britney Spears did not buy that album for myself. Um, Who'd you buy it for? For no one. It was purchased for me. Maybe that's where I should start. The thing about being difficult to shop for and having started playing music at a really young age is people just kind of buy you music as a gift. Things they think you should like. Yeah. Which colored my taste in music. I honestly couldn't remember ever purchasing music with my own money until I was an adult. Wow. Um, yeah, which is just, it's shameful. <laughs> but, you know, okay. people buy you albums, you listen to whatever your parents have, and my parents have pretty decent taste in music. Yep. But yeah, so, you know, for the most part, decent music was always around in the house, and if I had time to listen to stuff on my own, it was something my piano teacher made me listen to or whatever. Um, and then when I hit that age where you're insecure and let your friends influence your taste, I listen to what they listen to. Which is why things like Baby One More Time and Avril Lavigne's Let Go were considerations for this. That didn't quite make the cut. Um, On and On by Jack Johnson also didn't make Mm. the cut. Um, Jody Benson sings songs from the Beginner's Bible, which was purchased (laughs) for me, I believe, by my grandmother, (laughs) did not make the cut. That's a deep cut. She was the voice of the Little Mermaid. I can't say I've heard that. All right. The October Sky soundtrack Ooh. did not make the cut, which has like some Buddy Holly and Fats Domino. So I was kind of hoping that I was misremembering there. But um, yeah, Anarchy in the UK didn't make the cut and neither mm. did Jennifer Love Hewitt's self-titled album, which well, I did happened. own. She did a record. She did. Yeah. Sometimes I in the end, my most concrete memory of spending my own money on an album is connected to this song. I wanna ask you, do you ever sit and wonder it so strange we could be together for so long and never know, never care what goes on in the other one's hand. Things I felt but I never said. This in chorus. I remember this chorus. I remember yeah. this song. I remember this. I mean, it's ben good, Cole's, right? This it's era, amazing song. I definitely but, remember. But this. The uh-huh. the release is did this come out in two thousand nine? This came out in two thousand eight. That's like I had already done two years of college and I then know. was going into this is the first record I you bought. Know. It's the first it's not the first record I acquired. <laughs> no, no, but you bought. Um I bought it at a record store in Japan. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's cool. Um it, also yeah. the first record you bought wasn't not only not in your hometown. I know. It, it was, was in, in another the other country. side of the world. Yeah. <laughs> and not only that, but I went in there intending to buy Japanese music. 
um, for the cultural experience. And instead, I got this album where Ben Folds. That was probably, this album that was probably made, like, within an hour of where you grew up. <laughs> and you bought it in Yeah, Japan. I know. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Let's get into the song. So, so Marty, you said you do remember the song, Carter. I remember it. Yeah. yeah. Thoughts on it overall? it's pretty recent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely went through a Ben Folds phase well before this record came out. I was out. wondering. I was first hip to him with the covers that he did of like rap tunes and was like, this is amazing. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, wait, I don't even know about those. Oh my God. Do you guys know about the fake tracks he leaked himself? No. <laughs> so shortly before this album came out, he just wanted to do something fun. So I guess they got eight hours of studio time and did six facetious versions of tracks and leaked them on the internet. Um, but some of them are, are pretty great and worth checking out. Yeah, that's that fun fact for you. That is a fun fact. <laughs> if you ever been brainwashing, you know all about... This song is called You Don't Know Me. It features Regina Spector, who, you know, yep. also incredible, incredible pianist, vocalist, etc. Um, so I... I asked myself some questions as I did my research. And one of them was just what what's one of the first things that stands out to me about the song? And I love male-female vocals because you get that octave difference that is just such an interesting, rich sound. As far as first impressions, it was... I mean, I'm I'm glad it was a video, but it, once I saw <laughs> Tim and Eric on it... Distracted. I, yeah, it was very distracted. Because <laughs> like I, I was like, oh yeah, I know this tune. I like this tune. And it's just Tim and Eric. <laughs> And also that bass, the Steinberg. Yeah, um, so I was going to ask you, as a bass player, because the instruments aren't plugged into anything in the video. Yeah, they're not. Is that the actual bass on the track? I have no idea. Marty, you know those, I mean, you saw the video, but like those super light and like there's barely a body to it. There's no headstock. Um, I also, I don't like videos where you're playing along and you're clearly not plugged in like I think so that's a strike against this video that i like very much <laughs> there's like a there's like that's, a particular i didn't notice that but now i'm really bothered there's a particular aesthetic to this that i think they're playing into you know just ben folds is very good at balancing kind of the over-the-top poetic nature of songwriting that mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. are used to loving um where every line is just pure poetry and everything is a little melodramatic and we as listeners feel our feelings in very heavy ways um he's good at balancing that with language that's a little more colloquial and a little more realistic and easy to relate to and mm-hmm. a lot of songwriters aren't good at it and Ben Folds is great at it um I love songs that exist in that kind of emotional gray area where the topic isn't super polarizing you know lyrically a lot of breakup songs just put you on somebody's side and he's good at addressing complicated situations that are actually fairly normal and relatable and you're talking about a situation where two people are comfortable with one another but have a flawed relationship ultimately i love it when songs use things like arrangement to really lean into their narratives a little bit more and having those male female vocals where she kind of comes in and out sometimes they connect and sometimes they're in very different places it's it it ties into that idea of knowing someone but not really knowing them in a way that i find super interesting (laughs) 
Sappy much, right? So harmonically speaking, we can get off lyrics that you guys can Thank you. get back into the conversation. <laughs> um, harmonically speaking, this is a pretty straightforward song. We're staying pretty diatonic all the way through. It's always funny to me to realize how many of the songs I love are actually very simple and yep. diatonic. Because when I go to write on my own, I always have this like, how can I make the chord progression more interesting? And you well, just don't have to. I it, it's interesting to think you know if we do more of these and it'd be a good idea to just kind of keep the the harmony in mind on all the songs that we do because all of our songs today are very down the middle mm-hmm. uh, harmonically. But I'm sure that based on the theme, there will be some more kind of intricate harmony at play. But like when I first heard Brains Two, I didn't care what the chords were. I had no idea what they were. Right. So. Yeah. There's something comfortable about chord progressions that you've heard a million times. Yep. And I think it's still really impressive that an artist can create something original while leaning on a progression that we're very used to. Um, that maybe even sets up expectations for a different kind of melody sometimes. Another one of the questions from our list of things to consider when reviewing these songs is whether there's anything about the song that seems like it shouldn't work but then does, or that you might expect wouldn't work? Any of the instruments, because they're not plugged in. (laughs) (laughs) Ayo! I have no problem with cursing as a person. I think that there's a reason we use language like that. And Mm -hmm. I think that you should either go all in and really be like, this is part of the mood I'm creating. Uh, If you did a PG version of the police, it would not do anything for anyone. (laughs) You know, like, it wouldn't have that righteous indignation in the same way if it was very polite. Whereas, like, you know, if you throw the word into, like, a bubblegum pop song, it kind of feels like you're trying to be something you're not, like, add edge that isn't there. Yep. To the point where it's pretty distracting. And so he has one F-bomb in the song, but it works. It's not distracting. It it does that thing a good bridge does where you really hit an emotional climax. Mm -hmm. And right in that moment, it just gets so raw and emotional. And then we drop back down to repeating... um, you know that, that to chorus. Me, to me, this is like, this is like Ben Folds' version of breaking the fourth wall, on on his totally. on on. And I think that actually also, to Carter's point about why the video is so weird and it's so weird that the instruments aren't plugged in. That's sort of that's sort of the the crux of Ben Folds' genius, is to break down all of our expectations about the storyline mm-hmm. being portrayed. You know, it's it's you're in this sort of this fairy tale land of this perfect heteronormative relationship. And then he's like, oh, let me just drop this random F-bomb in this otherwise very, like, yeah. very sort of PG, safe, um, diatonic space. So where that bridge hits, where that moment happens, it becomes this really interesting turning point, which, again, one of my favorite things that bridges do is they sometimes change what a line means from earlier in the song when it comes back in Mm -hmm. so that you don't know me at all thing up until that point it feels very directed at the other person Mm -hmm. um it kind of feels like oh you haven't taken the time to really understand me and there's a bitterness and then you get to that moment in the bridge and the singer becomes kind of unhinged which i think is something we can all relate to in relationships you know where you just kind of lose it and then it drops down to this place and it feels much more directed at yourself all of a sudden you know it's like a black mirror twist or something where all of a sudden you feel weird as an observer for identifying with one character and then finding out they're not perfect so what 
I'm trying to say is what? What? I'm trying to tell you is not gonna come out like I wanna say it, cause I know you'll only change it. Say it. You don't yeah, those are those are my big observations. Well, on that note, I don't. I got. I, I got. Well, I got one more. I got one more point to bring up about this conversation okay. before we wrap it up, which is most young people, people who were our age when we bought our first record, most of the people who are that age now don't know what it means to buy a record at yeah. all. Yeah, a tape, a record, a CD, what have you. How does that? How do we? When I think about the way that Daft Punk's discovery, like I was talking about, the the sense of harmony, the sense of euphoria in the music, the the kind of electronic music it was, the sort of human breath inside of the electronic music, like I got to experience that by investing my ten cents into it because I spent a dollar on on my first ten CDs, <laughs> yeah. but like I had to buy that CD. I looked at it. I looked at the album artwork. You had, had to had open a, that annoying plastic stuff. I had to yeah, pry hard. with my fingernails I didn't have mm-hmm. uh, to get that CD out of that jewel case. Mm-hmm. Right. And put and it try in not my CD-ROM it. player in my, my Dell tower in, with <laughs> windows on it. And I opened up my Winamp with the six skin on it. And I pressed play on that CD. And my mind was blown yeah. in it a is. way that most people have to go to... That they're just scrolling through TikTok and they're yeah. like, oh, this is sick. Like, I never heard anything like this before. And it's like, you didn't do any work for that. That's going to do it for this very first episode of Themes and Variation. Thank you so much for listening. And we really want to know what songs were on the first album you ever bought. So there's a link in our show notes to a Spotify community playlist. Feel free to check it out and add your tracks there. And remember to head to soundfly.com for all of your music learning needs. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode and a new theme.